in cloudy, cold Manchester lived a poor young postdoctorate named Nicky Bucket and his family. One day, the famed intro maker, David Wonka, announced that he would open up his factory to the five lucky finders of his golden MP3 players. Nicky Bucket by chance downloaded an astronomy podcast and with it found his ticket to see inside the factory he had wondered about so much. A scene opens with Nicky, his grandpa Tim and the four other lucky winners outside the intro factory, waiting for the clock to strike ten and David Wonka to open the big iron gates. Nick, are your shoes clean? Yes, Grandpa Tim. Your hair, is it neatly combed? Let me look at it. Yes, Grandpa Tim. Did you scrape all the cold leftover pizza from under your fingernails? Uh, I was a postdoc once, you know. Yes, Grandpa. Aren't you excited to be going inside? I can't wait to see how Mr Wonka makes all his intros. Oh, Nick, I am too. But it looks like some of the other winners aren't quite so happy to be here. Can you read that one's name, Badge? I haven't got my glasses. Uh, Stuart... PC, and that one over there is Megan Newshound. Uh, Roy, something. I can't read the last one. Hello, and welcome to my intro factory today is the day I reopen my doors and invite these five lucky winners in to see how my intros and outros are made. Feast your ears on the weird and the wonderful. Hear the voices of starships light years away, focused through the lens of the weird and the pastiche. Listen once again to that which you thought familiar, reinterpreted for our purposes. What an eccentric performance. But first, before all of that, here's the lift to take us into the first room. Everyone in. Everyone in. Lift floor three, if you will. This is not just a lift. Just get on with it. Are there any computers in this place? Any com... Of course, dear boy. Why, we shall start by going to the central processing room. Fantastic. Here is where all the operations are carried out and everything is edited together. Amazing, isn't it? How much computing power is there here exactly? Ooh, I'd say almost precisely a lot. A computer this size would be an amazing story for the world to hear. I have to report on it. I've redeveloped all your software to run in Perl. And I've updated your website so it's now 263% faster and more effective. Oh, that's very kind of you. Now I need some black coffee, and I'll rewrite your computer's BIOS. Uh, Stuart, I'd stop if I were you. After that, I can install Linux on all your machines and run things from there and... Oh dear. Oh dear. It seems that young Stuart PC has reverted to... a computer programmer. This is all very interesting, Mr Wonka, but what are all these buttons? What's this one, for instance? No! Don't push that! You'll stop that! The Jodcast. It's behind you! Oh, yes it is. With Megan Argo, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast. December 2008 issue. Hello and welcome to the December 2008 issue of The Jodcast. I'm Nick Rattenbury and with me is Stuart Lowe. 
Hi there, Nick. Hi, everyone. In the show this time, we find out about observing galaxies in the infrared from our interviewee, Matt Jarvis. We review an astronomical book. We find out what you can see in the night sky during December. We talk about the first events in the International Year of Astronomy. We bring breaking news about our brand new forum. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month. More clues in the hunt for dark matter. Testing the fundamental fuzziness of time. And more extrasolar planets imaged. Earlier in 2008, results were reported from the Payload for Antimatter Matter Exploration and Light Nuclei Astrophysics Satellite, or PAMELA for short, which showed an excess of high-energy positrons, also known as anti-electrons. One possible cause of this larger-than-expected number of detections could be the annihilation of dark matter particles. Now, in the November 20th issue of the journal Nature, another team report the discovery of an excess in the number of high-energy electrons. The Advanced Thin Ionization Calorimeter Experiment, or ATIC, searches for charged particles from space using a high-altitude balloon-borne detector. Once launched from the Ross Ice Shelf, the experiment flew at a height of 35 kilometers over Antarctica, above 99% of the Earth's atmosphere. The detector measures the energy of electrons arriving at Earth after traveling various distances through the galaxy, originating in various types of objects such as supernovae. Theoretical models predict that there should be fewer electrons at higher energies, which, overall, is what the attic results show. However, between energies of 300 and 600 giga electron volts, the number of electrons peaked sharply before falling back to the expected background level. One theory put forward to explain this excess, along with the excess of positrons seen by the Pamela experiment, is that it could be the result of heavy dark matter particles annihilating. In this process, the energy is converted into an electron and a positron, moving at speeds related to the energy of the dark matter particles. The higher the energy of the dark matter particles, the higher the speeds of the electron and the positron that result from the annihilation. The results do not perfectly match the predictions from particle physics models, however, and less exotic theories have also been put forward to explain the excess. Other causes of high-energy electrons include nearby supernova remnants, pulsars, or possibly microquasars. The answer could even be a new type of object, which has not yet been discovered. Further evidence one way or the other could soon come from other missions, such as the Fermi Gamma Ray Telescope, which could also detect gamma rays which could come from dark matter annihilations. An experiment looking for high-energy cosmic rays also reported an interesting new result during November. The Milagro Observatory in New Mexico is designed to detect these high-energy particles which appear to come from every direction on the sky. Although it is not certain where they originate, suggestions include supernovae and quasars, active supermassive black holes devouring gas at the centre of distant galaxies. Because the particles are charged, cosmic rays are affected by the magnetic field of the Milky Way, changing their flight paths and preventing researchers from determining their origin. It was thought that cosmic rays were distributed randomly across the sky, but the new results from Milagro, published in Physical Review Letters on November the 25th, show two so-called hotspots where there appears to be an excess of cosmic rays. Compared to the general background of cosmic rays, these hotspots are relatively small and cover a large area of the sky. The brightest of the two regions is located in the constellation of Orion and is approximately 2.5 by 7.5 degrees in size. 
In comparison, the moon appears about half a degree in diameter. The Milagro Observatory was able to detect these weak excesses due to its sensitivity and wide field of view. It is able to see the entire sky overhead at once. No one idea can yet account for the results so far, but one suggestion is that an as-yet-unknown effect, caused by an irregularity in the local magnetic field of the galaxy, could effectively focus cosmic rays in particular parts of the sky. The team are working on a new detector known as the High Altitude Water Cherenkov Experiment, which could help solve the mystery. Time is usually thought of as flowing smoothly, but quantum mechanics says that it is in fact fuzzy, passing in discrete intervals of such a small size that they have never been experimentally measured. But in a paper published in the journal Physical Review D, Craig Hogan, a theoretical physicist at Fermilab in the US, suggests that this fundamental fuzziness could be the cause of so far unexplained noise in measurements made by the GEO 600 gravitational wave detector in Germany. Classical physics describes space and time as smooth, but in quantum mechanics there are minimum scales where this smoothness breaks down, known as the Planck length and the Planck time. These scales can be calculated from theories, but they have never been tested experimentally due to their extremely small size. Hogan's theory predicts that a significant amount of the mystery noise seen in the results from GEO 600 could be caused by this intrinsic discrete nature of time. Based on the idea that the universe is essentially holographic, the theory predicts noise just like that seen at GEO 600, but planned upgrades to the detector over the next year could shed more light on the subject. As mentioned in the November mid-month show, Planets outside our solar system have been directly imaged for the first time. The planets were found around two separate stars by different groups of researchers using different telescopes, but both results were published in the journal Science during November. Rather than indirect detections, such as measuring the wobble induced in a star by an orbiting planet, for example, these results are the first direct images of extrasolar planetary systems. The trick with direct imaging is in finding a way to block out the comparatively strong light of the parent star, so that the light from the planet can actually be detected. One team used the Hubble Space Telescope to detect a Jupiter-mass planet orbiting the star Fommelhaupt, while the other group imaged a system of three planets around a star known as HR8799 using the Keck and Gemini telescopes. The study of light directly reflected from these planets can provide information on the composition of their atmospheres that cannot be determined indirectly. Closely following these announcements came news of a candidate planet imaged around the star Beta Pictoris. A team using the Very Large Telescope, or VLT, in Chile, imaged the object about eight times as massive as Jupiter, lying at a distance from Beta Pictoris similar to that of Saturn from the Sun. Although the team say that they cannot yet completely rule out the possibility that the candidate planet is either a foreground or background object, the fact that it lies directly in the plane of the star's debris disk makes the planet hypothesis the most likely. And finally, researchers in Poland claim to have identified the remains of the astronomer Nicholas Copernicus, who was the first astronomer to formulate a scientifically based model of the motion of celestial objects without having the Earth at its centre. He is therefore often regarded as the father of modern astronomy. Archaeologists found the skeleton about three years ago in northeastern Poland in a cathedral near where Copernicus lived. Jerzy Gazowski, the leader of the archaeologist team, said forensic facial reconstruction of the skull showed that it bore a striking resemblance to existing portraits of Copernicus. 
People had speculated about his final resting place for centuries, but scientists have now matched DNA from one of the skull's teeth and a femur bone with strands of the astronomer's hair that was found in a book once owned by Copernicus, finally clearing up the mystery. Thanks for that, Megan. OK, it's interview time. Nick, tell us who you've been talking to this time. Yes, I spoke with Matt Jarvis about the video survey. The video survey uses the VISTA telescope to image distant galaxies in the infrared. Let's see what he had to say. So this is a new near-infrared survey telescope um, that's currently um, almost complete in Chile um, on Paranal, near where the VLT is. And it's a four-metre telescope, and its camera has effectively a, a one-and-a-half-square-degree field of view um, once you've filled in the focal plane because um, the detectors are separated by a certain amount, so you have to fill in the plane to get a full tile, a complete um, continuous tile. And it's the biggest um, near-infrared survey telescope in the world. When we talk about near-infrared, tell us where exactly on the electromagnetic spectrum that is. Okay, so it's basically where um, thermal emissions um, emitted. So your body emits in the infrared all the time through heat. So in you turn, talk in um, wavelengths, then it's just beyond the optical um, light, it's slightly more red. So it's gone past the red and you go into the infrared. So it's basically looking at heat, em emission from heat. So, yeah, and it, it goes through the atmosphere in various bands. A lot of the infrared light is um, absorbed by the atmosphere and so it doesn't get through, but we can observe in certain transmission windows, um, which we use in the near-infrared um, wavelengths on the ground. What does the absorption in the atmosphere for this band of infrared light? It's um, water in the atmosphere, basically, and um, OH lines contribute as well. So just uh, molecules in the atmosphere do the absorbing. But uh, there's chunks in the infrared um, spectrum where the light can get through, and that's where we observe. So the commissioning of a new 4-metre telescope is exciting in itself, but why was it specifically designed for infrared observations? We haven't been able to do wide-field astronomy in the near-infrared before, and it's only um, with new technology that we've been able to do this. So detectors become cheaper, um, become better, and um, you can get more of them in into one telescope. So that increases your field of view, so you can all of a sudden do very big surveys. I mean, the first near-infrared detectors of this sort were only around in the 90s, hmm. and they were very small. Um, and in the space of 10 to 12 years... We've gone from observing a few art minutes on the sky to square degrees. So it's quite a big leap. Why is it harder to build a, presumably a CCD detector for infrared light compared to optical light? Well, the infrared detectors are made from different um, things. So in the optical, you have these CCD detectors, which um, charge a couple of devices, whereas in the near-infrared, you have germanium and various other chemicals that do the detection for you. So the actual technology of um, infrared detectors is a lot different to optical detectors. Hmm. So that technology has moved on. A lot of it comes from military operations. Of course, was, <laughs> you've seen quite a few of these pictures of you know, military operations where uh, enemy soldiers are, are, are visible in the infrared from their yeah. body heat, presumably. Yeah, so exactly. this, is, this has now trickled down into astronomy. Yeah, I mean, it's similar sort of um, process, but it's slightly, slightly different technology. It's more like um, the satellite technology we have from the military. Um, so satellite cameras on satellites detecting things so and you can use it for astronomy which came first i'm not sure what can you learn by making the observations over a wide field using the vista telescope specifically in the infrared so the infrared is very good because obviously it's at longer wavelengths you detect light from old stars which are generally red so old stars are red so we 
we generally pick out um, old massive elliptical galaxies when we observe in the near infrared. This is where most of the mass is in elliptical galaxies. It's in, most of the mass in stellar populations emit in red wavelengths. Um, young stars emit in bluer wavelengths. So where we have star formation going on, that's more blue light. Old stellar populations is red light, and that's what we pick up in the near infrared. Hmm. And the other aspect is, because as the universe expands, you get this redshift effect. And by observing at longer wavelengths from the ground, we pick up optical light emitted from galaxies a lot further away in the universe, which where the light's been redshifted into the near-infrared. So it allows us to um, study galaxies over a large chunk of cosmic time. So it's possible to see a, a, a blue galaxy, a young star-forming galaxy, at higher redshifts because the light has been redshifted into yeah, the infrared. that's right. Hmm. So what sort of what do you learn from these observations? Well, we want to know how galaxies form and when they form and how they form and how they evolve since they first form in the very early universe. And to do that, we need a consistent picture. So we need to, to when you select galaxies from big surveys where you're taking large images of the sky, you're selecting in various colours. And this redshift effect, although good for some reasons, it can be bad in others because it means that you're not selecting galaxies in the same way if they're a large distance compared to ones that are closer to us. So what we need to try and do is select things in the same wavelength that they're emitted at, so um, the same rest wavelength. And to do that, you need to observe at longer and longer wavelengths as you go to higher and higher redshift, and so larger distances. So that's quite crucial, and that's part of the reasons we need to move to the near-infrared. Okay. And so specifically in terms of learning about galaxy evolution with these observations how do you go from the observations to some statement about what a galaxy is doing how it's how it's evolved where it is on its evolution and its future presumably yeah so well what we can do is because we have various filters we sample it's like taking a spectrum of a galaxy if you have lots of filters over the same patches filtered observations over the same patch of sky so you're looking at different parts of the spectrum and by looking at the different parts of the spectrum you can knit them all together and fit a, a galaxy typical galaxy spectrum to them and um, so to the colors that you're observing in the imaging surveys you take a model galaxy and you see what colors it should have at a certain redshift and if it had a certain mass it would make it brighter or less bright so by doing this sort of take the observations and fitting models to it we can estimate the galaxy's mass and also get an estimate how old the the stars are in the galaxy and also what redshift the galaxy is at and we can do this over a broad range of cosmic time because um, we can select these galaxies from the very early universe and through to quite recent universe and trying to get an estimate of the build-up of stellar mass in the universe in the form of galaxies. And by comparing how many of one type of galaxies around at a certain time compared to what's happening now, we can try and get a picture of how galaxies evolve and how star-forming galaxies when do they occur and how long does it take them to evolve into massive elliptical galaxies and things like that. When did galaxies start to emerge in the universe's evolution? Well, the most distant galaxy um, that's ever been observed up to now is at Redshift 7, which is less than a giga year, less than a billion years after the Big Bang. Hmm. And that's the um, furthest di- galaxy we've got spectroscopic confirmation of. Um, so we know it's Redshift, we know where it is, uh, but there's only one. <laughs> um, and after that, we know quite a few now around Richard six and a half, which is only a few million years, well, a few hundred million years after that first galaxy. But it's quite a big leap because this is where all the first galaxies were forming and there's quite a lot of activity going on. Around about redshift of, of six. Yeah, 
um, there should be lots, there should be galaxies out there, but they're difficult to find because, um, they're obviously distant, so they're fainter. But you have other problems associated with the amount of dust in the galaxy, which obscures them from our view. And also, at that redshift, it's a time called the Epoch of Reionization, where there's a large fraction of, um, neutral hydrogen in the universe. And that also absorbs blue light below a certain wavelength, which again hinders our ability to detect them. So there's lots of problems, but that's one of the aims that we're trying to find the earliest galaxies because we need to know when and where they formed. So the observations in the infrared would allow you to make observations of these earliest galaxies because they are so red, you're observing in the near infrared, and plus also infrared observations will help with the dust absorption. Well, not so much because these are redshifted, so we're sampling the rest frame blue light. Um, so we're, even with near infrared observations, the highest red, we can only observe the highest redshift objects if they don't have dust in them. Okay, so let's say um, Vista starts uh, starts its observations and video, your survey, begins. You get a pile of galaxies within a certain magnitude range and therefore distance and redshift and all the rest of it. What does that tell you? You fit all these with uh, galactic models. I mean, do you believe the models or <laughs> is the data um, going to be driving the model evolution itself? Well, I think if we're consistent with the models, then we can get a consistent picture over... Um, if we use the same models at different um, epochs in the universe, then even if the models are out by a certain factor, the relative difference between them should be the same because we're using the same models. Hmm. Um, there are certain issues with doing that because you think you might think things evolve differently. But the models are also being updated constantly as we get more information from the observations. So it's a two-way process. Um, so both the theoreticians coming up with various synthetic models of galaxies and also the observers that helping feed into these models uh, work, work together to try and come up with a consistent picture. Now, the galaxies don't evolve in isolation. They're part of uh, a larger environment. You have clusters and groups of galaxies, plus also there's the universe itself. What will your observations tell us about our understanding of the universe as a whole? Well, I mean, one of the crucial... Uh, aims of video is like not only do we get a very deep picture of the universe we get quite a large view in in wide area so we actually probe a large what's called a representative volume of the universe so when we think the universe is homogeneous and isotropic we think it's roughly that on these scales that we're probing with video whereas smaller surveys you have this problem where you don't know which bit of the universe you're looking at. you could be looking in a very special exactly. direction or something whereas by going wide and deep we get a large volume in the radial direction, so in the depth of the universe, but we also get wide enough so we can sample all types of environments, so from the ma most massive clusters to the sparsest voids in the universe. So we can see how galaxies form and evolve in different environments as well as how they evolve over time. Mm. So it averages out over this larger area. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about the video survey specifically. So video is... Um, a 12-square-degree survey, it's going to be conducted over three areas of sky. These areas of sky have well surveyed in other wavelengths, from um, X-rays to radio to far-infrared and optical bands, which means that we can combine the video data with lots of other data to get a full picture of how galaxies form and evolve. It has a depth that it can um, find a typical elliptical galaxy out to redshift 4, which is around 2 giga years after the Big Bang two to three gig years after the Big Bang. But it also um, can find the most massive galaxies all the way out to less than a gig a year after the Big Bang, um, which is important. And the area is good because the most massive things are rare, so you only really find lots of them if you go to a wide area. So that's another niche aspect of the video survey. The Vista telescope itself has been built. Presumably the camera has been built. 
Yep. Is it operational yet? It is, it is being commissioned at the moment, and there are images from um, Vista, and it all looks to be working perfectly. And we expect science verification to start in January, and the surveys, including video, will start in March, and April, March or April next year. Of course, um, you mentioned the other surveys. Video is just one of many surveys that the Vista Telescope will be performing. What are some of the other ones? So there's six um, public surveys to be um, conducted on Vista. There are four what you'd call more extragalactic surveys, um, although there is some crossover into galactic science. Um, it's sort of a wedding cake strategy, which the way a lot of surveys are done at the moment. And that's because um, you want to combine a wide, shallow survey, which gives you a representative volume of the low redshift universe, with a deep, narrower survey, which gives you a, a representative volume of the high redshift universe. So it's all to do with um, surveying similar volumes at different epochs in the universe. So... There's a hemisphere survey, which is the aim is to cover a whole, the whole southern hemisphere um, down to quite shallow um, levels. And then there's the next one on top of that called the Viking survey, which is a 1,000-square-degree survey, and that's going slightly deeper. And then there's video, which is the 12-square-degree survey, which is deeper still but narrower still. And then there's the UltraVista survey, which is one pointing of the v- Vista camera and over around one square degree, one to one and a half square degrees to get the greatest depth that you can over one patch of sky to really probe the highest redshift galaxies and the earliest times in the universe. Hmm. Are these projects going to be done concurrently or consecutively? No, they're all uh, they're all done um, concurrently, and um, it, each survey requires different um, observing strategies and they observe at different times of the year depending on where the fields are. So, for instance, video um, fields are are only in the sky in the um, northern hemisphere winter, so the southern hemisphere summer. Uh, whereas uh, the deepest Vista survey, Ultra Vista, is up around um, April time, uh, March-April time. So there's been some talk between the surveys to make sure that all the surveys are done concurrently and should finish around the same time, around five years from now. Right. And the data will be public. It will. So presumably anybody could... Anyone can download video data. Okay. As soon as it is available or as soon as you've uh, you've had a look at it or how soon is immediately? Well, the raw data, so the unprocessed, completely raw data, is available from the ESO archive straight away as soon as it arrives at ESO, which is about a month after the observations are taken. Obviously, to get any science out of that data, you'd have to do an awful lot of work because this is raw data. There's lots of issues with the, the detectors that you have to be um, ironing out, essentially. And so, but there will be... Um, public releases of all reduced data, so final data products from the video survey team, which are made available through the virtual observatory. Hmm. Um, so anyone in the world will be able to download catalogues and images of all the VISTA data once it's released by the survey teams. This is uh, fairly unorthodox, right? From you, you, you spend a lot of money building a telescope, camera, putting together a team. You tend to want to hang on to the data for a little bit before you let anybody take a look at it, making it public. I mean, other big projects, they don't do this, right? They hang on to the data for a proprietary length of time, get as much science out of it, and then say, there you go, you can play with yourselves. Why Why is it done this way? Well, it's ESO policy is the bottom line, but um, it's also uh, it's to try and get as many people using the data as possible. I mean, there's only so much the survey team can do on its own, and um, we can't cover all areas of astronomy that you can do with this data. Also, it, the survey team itself does also get a bit of time with the data before they release the final data product. So, in essence, the survey team does get a head start. Um, it's just that when we're happy and we have certain deadlines that we have to meet to release the data, but we'll 
aim to release the final data products um, on the timeline that we have, which is roughly around six months to a year after the data is taken, um, every six to 12 months. When it began its life, Vista was a UK telescope. It was. Now it's part of ESO. How did that work? So at the time when Vista was being um, thought of, um, a, a consortium of UK universities um, got money from the government, essentially, to build Vista. And at this, roughly a few, at the same time or a year or so later, um, the UK wanted to join ESO, the European Southern Observatory. And Vista was used as part of a buy-in to ESO. So we gave Vista to ESO as part of the UK's contribution to ESO. Hmm. Well, you know, of course, uh, the PIs of all the surveys you've just mentioned are all UK uh, PIs, which is convenient. <laughs> well, the, each survey has a UK PI. That we are, there, there aren't just UK PIs. There are PIs from Holland and France and Denmark and um, Chile, in fact, as well. So a lot of the proposals have joint PIs, so not just UK people. But, mm-hmm. yes, a lot of the surveys do have UK PIs, and that stems from the fact that the UK has a very strong um, tradition of survey astronomy, in particular in the near-infrared with um, the UK Infrared Deep Sky Survey, which is currently ongoing using UKIRT on Hawaii. Yeah. How will VISTA compare with Spitzer, the space telescope operating in the infrared? Well, Spitzer's been fantastic, um, and that's because it's observing in space, and um, near-infrared light is a lot easier to detect in space because you don't have the atmosphere in the way. So Spitzer is unbelievably sensitive for a, an 80-centimeter telescope. Um, VISTA has a four-beta uh, mirror, so the advantages that VISTA will have over something like Spitzer, it observes at slightly different wavelengths, slightly shorter wavelengths for one thing, but also its um, image quality will be a lot better because it's got a bigger telescope and the, the diffraction limit is higher. So we get better quality images from VISTA, even if it's from the ground, because the telescope's so much bigger. So it's very complementary to to Spitzer. We very much look forward to the first results from video and the other VISTA surveys, so thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. Okay, thanks. So there you have it. Thanks again to Matt Jarvis for talking to us about the video survey. Now, we're going to try something new on this episode of the Jodcast. We're going to review a book, just in time for Christmas. Stuart. That's right. We've been sent a copy of Mars 3D by the author Jim Bell, who is also the PanCam team leader for the Mars Exploration Rovers, PanCam being the panoramic cameras on board those rovers. And as it's called Mars 3D, as you might expect, it contains 3D images of Mars. It's quite neatly done, too, because you know in previous publications of 3D images, you've got the image in front of you and you're given a pair of those cheesy glasses with one eye covered by blue cellophane and the other eye covered by red cellophane. In this book, the glasses are built into the front cover of the book. So you unfold the front cover, it folds out, and then you can flick through the pages on which the images are printed and you can look at them through the glasses without ever worrying about ever losing them. That's a very good idea because I generally do lose these things if if they come as a separate thing. Hmm. And there's, and, uh, e- there's even, a, there's even was, a hole cut in the in, in the cover for your nose so you can breathe properly. There is. It does make you look foolish if you're reading the book on a train, though, you're holding a book up and sticking your nose through through the front cover. So wh- what did you think of the, well, the of content? Course, whenever you come across a book like this, Mars in 3D with these lovely 3D images and you know, these crazy glasses to look at them through, the first thing that people do, certainly I did, was fold out the glasses and then flick through the book, looking at the images first of all, because that's the, the main point of the book. So that's what I did to start off with. And so the book 
to me, largely rests on the quality of the images, and they're very, very good indeed. I mean, you do get a sense of the 3D nature of uh, the Martian landscapes that uh, the rovers captured. Uh, you don't really tend to get much an idea of scale, however. You don't. You no, know. that was was a bit of a problem on some of the images. I mean, I, the ones I thought were the best images actually were were a lot of the close up ones where there was cameras looking at rock close up, and you could see the the blueberry features, which mm. are um, a type of rock feature that's caused by erosion, um, and they looked amazing in 3D. I found some of the general scene views were slightly difficult to to see for me. Mm. Things which were sort of quite landscapey with nothing in the foreground to give you that sense of perspective, I found quite difficult to. Yeah, you needed a you needed a, an astronaut or someone like there just to then <laughs> scale to the to the to the landscapes. You have an idea of are you looking at a massive vista or are you looking at a little furrow in the ground, maybe three meters away from you? you? You had no idea, but but I have to say, in the text, it did generally try to give you an idea of the scale of things. It would tell you the size of rocks or or stones in in the picture. Bringing it to the next point, which is, once you've finished looking at the images, how good was the book in terms of the, the factual information or the story that it was telling? And to me, it was it was pretty good. I mean, the images drew me in. I looked at the images. I enjoyed the images. And then you started reading some of the descriptive text, and it was extremely good. You got not, It was pitched well. I understood everything which was being explained to me. And it sure, you know, it's, it's an excellent book for uh, general public. You don't have to know much about the rovers and what they did. You don't need to know much about Mars its climate or anything like that. It's all given to you. It's all explained. It's yeah, the introduction is quite good and takes you through how the rovers got to be there and what they do and what they what they consist of. Explains what the different cameras are. Mm. You get you do get a sense from looking at the 3D images that this is a real planet. I mean, it's not just presented to you as you know a, an image on a, on, a, on a page. It is a real planet. These little rovers are roving around on a real landscape. That is a hill they have to go over. That's a big rock. Presumably they've got to go around, so it's you get a feeling of they're exploring this planet. Well, it, it did really feel like you were there, as, as close as you can be, without sticking on virtual reality goggles or actually going to Mars. I, I got the feeling I was being a rover, especially when you saw some of the, the times when the rover got its wheels stuck in the sand and you could see the, the furrows it had made as it tried to drag to it dig its wheels out. through. Yeah. Yeah. It was brilliant. Mm. Would I buy this book for myself? I'm not sure. Would I recommend other people buying it for, you know, other people or themselves? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we should probably say what the, the recommended retail price is £14.99. Mm-hmm. Um, although various online booksellers, uh, have it discounted at the moment as little as about £8.57. Right. So that's Mars 3D by Jim Bell. Publisher is Sterling. Okay. So we, uh, yeah, we enjoyed the book. We did. And actually I, I showed it to some, postdocs and postgraduate students and some secretaries in our group and they were all going ooh and ah as they looked through the pictures hmm. so it's a it's probably a nice thing to put on a coffee table and just yeah it goes beyond it goes through. beyond you know um, a novelty thing i think i mean the the descriptive text is at a depth and at a level which means that you are engaged with the images you learn something about them and it's an all-round good coffee table book it is now, unfortunately, Mars lies too close to the sun at the moment to be observed, but here's Ian Morrison telling us what else we can see in the night sky. Well, hello again. I sometimes think that December is probably the best month of the year during which to observe the heavens, because we get obviously very long nights, the longest we have throughout the year, and it gives us a chance to see two lovely areas of the sky, one early in the evening and one later on. And one first very beautiful area is the region around Cygnus, Lyra and Aquila with the three stars that actually make up what's called the Summer Triangle because they're visible in the summer as well. 
I've talked about that area in detail in some of the earlier um, autumn, early autumn uh, Jodcasts, so perhaps if you want to learn more about that part of the sky, which you can see fairly high in the west after sunset, then have a listen to one of the ones for a month or so ago. But then as the night moves on, uh, we see the second wonderful area of sky, which is really centered on the constellation of Orion the Hunter. The three stars that make up his belt make lovely pointers. Uh, down to the lower left is the constellation of Canis Major with its bright star Sirius. Sirius is very bright, the brightest star we see in the northern sky. It's also obviously very low, not very far above the horizon for us up in the north of England particularly. And as a result, it tends to scintillate quite a lot, and, and the light gets refracted through the Earth's atmosphere and breaks up into colours. So quite often you actually see it almost dancing about in flashes of red and blue. And quite often at Jodrell Bank we get rung up by people wondering what it is they've seen. Well, it's an effect of the, the atmosphere of the Earth on those nights when the stars seem to twinkle or not. If you move up to the right of Orion, following those three stars, you come to the region of Taurus, the constellation Taurus, which has got two lovely clusters in it. Um, first of all, moving up to the right from Orion, we have the Hyades cluster. Um, at its heart is apparently a very bright star called Aldebaran, or Aldebaran, some people might call it, uh, an orange giant star. In fact, it forms the eye of Taurus the bull, and the Hyades cluster make up the V-shaped face. In fact, Aldebaran is not part of the Hyades cluster. It's only about halfway between us and the cluster, and whereas all the cluster stars are moving over to the left in the sky, Aldebaran is moving southward, so they're quite separate. But that's a very nice little region to look at. If you follow up higher in the sky, still in the same direction, you come to that most beautiful little cluster called the Pleiades cluster. Um, sometimes called the Seven Sisters. In fact, if you look there, you don't tend to see seven stars with your unaided eye. I can see five, but if you can see more than five, you probably see nine. But perhaps that's got the parents as well. Lovely thing to look at in binoculars, it really is, or with a small telescope. And beautiful little stars there. One of the bright stars has a little triplets of stars close by, and that looks very sweet. And to the right of that, with, with a telescope, you see a little double star system where the upper right of the pair is a beautiful, deep red colour. Very, very obvious colour contrast there. Up to the left of Orion, we have the heavenly twins, Gemini. Over to the left, you've got below Gemini, is Canis Minor, almost just one star visible, Procyon. And then above Orion, coming up along the band of the Milky Way, in fact, is Auriga, with its bright yellow star Capella, which can be almost overhead at an appropriate time in the night. Um, because it's in the plane of the Milky Way, there are many star clusters there, and uh, M37, 38, and 36, I think, are three of the ones that you pick out with binoculars fairly easily. So a very rich part of the sky to observe. So do enjoy some of the clear nights we have this month. Obviously, when the moon is uh, not around, you can see fainter objects. Well, what about the planets? It's not a brilliant month for planets, but it's actually quite an interesting one. Um, Jupiter, 
We've been seeing that fairly low in the south for quite a few months now. That's really low down in the southwest as nightfall begins. It's actually to the left of the teapot. Those are the stars that make up the constellation Sagittarius, although because they're low down, they're not at all obvious to us up in the north of England. Um, it's about 34 arc seconds across, so a small telescope will sh certainly show details on the surface. At magnitude minus two, it's still pretty bright. It's fading very slightly, but not a lot during the month. During the month of December, it will gradually be lost in the sun's glare, but nevertheless, we'll still be able to see it, and there are a couple of nice highlights that I'll come to very shortly. Uh, Jupiter's now at the lowest point in the ecliptic, and that means it, it doesn't rise to very high elevation. It's never been more than about 15 or so degrees above our southern horizon in England, and that means, of course, we're looking at it through a fairly thick atmosphere, which does rather blur the view. Gradually, over the next few years, it'll work its way up from that bottom point in the ecliptic, and our views will be better. Well, Saturn is now a morning object, but in fact uh, rising in the east, in fact, before midnight. Probably best seen in a couple of hours, in the couple of hours or so before dawn, when it's fairly high in the, in the southern sky, and uh, it's at magnitude one. Now, that's not an awful lot, certainly less than normal, because at this time, the rings of Saturn are closing. Our view of Saturn is such that the rings are going to become edge-on in not too many months, and there's only about four degrees angle between us and the plane of the rings, so they're obviously not reflecting nearly as much light as usual. It's still, however, a very beautiful planet uh, to observe. Mercury. This comes and goes quite quickly because it whips around the sun in only 88 days, and it's going to become visible again during the last week of December, and as we shall see later, it actually meets with Jupiter on December the 28th. Because it's low in the sky, binoculars tend to be an aid to see it. Although its magnitude of minus 0 0.7, it's actually slightly brighter than Saturn at the moment. So when you do see it, it is actually fairly obvious. At the moment, Mars is actually so close to the sun, we can't see it. It's gone round the back, so we have to wait a few more months before that becomes visible in the morning. Venus, that is becoming more apparent as time goes by. It's now seen low in the west after sunset, shining at magnitude minus 4.2. And Venus is, in fact, the brightest of the planets that we see in the sky. So you can easily see it without binoculars. I picked it up quite easily just the other night. Now, over this year, it's tended to be what's called rather low declination. It's lower in, in the heavens than the sun. And that means that it tends not, to, it hasn't been rising to, to very high elevation. That's beginning to change. And so over the next few months, we will see Venus far more prominent in the evening sky than we've seen it, in fact, for throughout the whole of this year. Again, there's going to be a nice little highlight later this month. As the month goes by, the angular size, if you look at it with a small telescope, is increasing. It's getting nearer to us. It goes from 16 to 19 or so arc seconds. At the same time, the area of the surface that we see illuminated is reduced because it's coming nearer to us. It's like when the moon has a thinner and thinner crescent. Interestingly, the effect of getting larger and the effect of having a smaller area illuminated means that the, the, the cancels out and the brightness of Venus stays pretty well constant 
at about magnitude minus 4.2 or so for several months at a time. So it's a very nice prominent planet to see. So let's move on to some of the highlights of the month. On December the 29th, there's a nice lineup of the planets with the thin crescent moon. You've got Venus, Jupiter and Mercury all lined up with the moon. So that'll look very nice just uh, before and after sunset. But also, it so happens that Neptune is actually only two and a bit degrees, two and a half degrees away from Venus that night. And that would give you a good chance to try and spot it. If you put Venus on the left-hand side of the field of a pair of binoculars, Neptune at uh, shining at magnitude um, 8, so that should be visible if it's reasonably dark by then, will be up to the right of, of Venus. If you go to the night sky webpage, just put night sky into Google, it's on the Jotterbank website, I've actually got a little finder chart for Neptune. And of course, although Venus will disappear from the field uh, within a day or so, um, you can still find Neptune related to the star Delta Capricornus, which is at magnitude 2.9, I think, nearly third magnitude, which is just low and to the left of where Neptune is. So that gives you a chance to find Neptune. Now, in the mid-early evening, you have a chance again to see the Andromeda galaxy, and I've talked about that quite a bit recently. But over to the left of Andromeda is the constellation of Perseus. And in Perseus, there's a rather interesting binary star system called Algol, sometimes called the Demon Star, because it appears to wink. Every couple of so days, 2.87 days to be precise, in fact, one of the stars the less bright becomes in front of the brighter star and the brightness drops by around a magnitude. And that's really quite obvious. It just takes a few hours for the brightness to drop and then to rise again. Now, I've picked out a couple of times uh, during December when you have a reasonable chance to see this. You'd, ideally, you want to have a look at it in the sort of the, in the evening. So if you found Olgol, and I've put a little finder chart again on the Night Sky website, if you look out around 8.17, 2017 UT, on the 7th of December, 17.06, that should be after dark, on the 10th of December, and 18.50 on the 30th of December, around that time, you will actually see the brightness of Algol fade quite significantly and rise again. It is worth seeing sometimes Algol, the demon star, which is what is called an eclipsing binary. Now, usually in December, we tell you to look out for the Geminids, which is one of the most um, reliable of the meteor showers during the year. The trouble is, it's on the morning of December the 14th when we would have the chance of seeing it best. But sadly, the moon is just one day past full moon, and it's not very far away in the sky, which means its glare is going to obscure all but the very brightest of the Geminids. Um, they're relatively slow-moving meteors, and uh, some of them can be quite bright. They appear to come from a point that we call the radiant. It's where the meteors appear to come from, to arise from, which is actually close to the star Castor in the constellation of Gemini, hence the name the Geminids. Well, it might be worth having a look, but sadly this isn't going to be the best year to observe them. Thankfully, next year will be a lot better. 
Well, there's a lot to see this month. I hope I haven't gone too long. But before I leave, can I just say something for those of you who listened? Thank you very much to our Jogcast, who are in the Southern Hemisphere. And obviously, we tend to, to miss you out. Um, I just would like to say something which I think will also be an interest to people who live in the Northern Hemisphere. Because one of the nice things to see in the evening in the Southern Hemisphere at the present time, let's say about 9 or 10 o'clock, looking to the south, fairly high up, to the left you have one of the brightest stars in the sky, which is called Canopus, and over to the right you have the star Achenar, which is um, not quite as bright as Canopus, but not far off. If you look below those two in the sky, and still pretty high up, we have nearer Canopus, what is called the Large Magellanic Cloud, and just below Achenar, towards the horizon, the Small Magellanic Cloud. These are the actual third and fourth nearest galaxies to us in the heavens. They're not that far away. They're about 160,000 light years from us. They're separated by 21 degrees in the sky, about 75,000 light years apart. Um, there are actually two small dwarf galaxies which are nearer. The large magnetic cloud is actually the fourth largest galaxy in what we call our local group of galaxies. We're number two, the Milky Way is number two. The Andromeda galaxy is the largest, the granddaddy of them all, and then the third largest is M33, which is in Triangulum, much smaller than either Andromeda or our own Milky Way. Number four comes in is the large magnetic cloud. Um, it is classed as an irregular galaxy, but there's quite a strong bar, and one suspects it probably would have been a barred spiral in the past, but interactions both with the small Magellanic Cloud and also our own Milky Way have tended to sort of upset its shape. It does have one of the largest star formation regions that we know of. It's called 30 Doradus, or the Tarantula Nebula, which is sort of up to the left in most of the, of the photographs. And because there are lots of stars being born there, there's a reasonable chance that some of them might blow up. And I'm sure many of you in the Southern Hemisphere who have been around for a while will know that in 1987 we saw a supernova in the large magnetic cloud. In fact, the first one we've seen anywhere nearby for, for several hundred years. So it's quite a nice object to look at. Now, it was thought for a long time that these were sort of daughter galaxies of our own Milky Way. They were orbiting the Milky Way galaxy. Now, if that is the case from the speeds at which they're moving and how far they are away from us, one can calculate the mass of the Milky Way. But this began to become rather embarrassingly high, as though, in fact, the mass of our own Milky Way galaxy was greater than that of the Andromeda galaxy, which is not what we really thought. It now appears, from even later measurements showing their speed and velocities through space, their directions as well, that they're actually just bypassing the Milky Way. They're not locked to us, they're just going past, and uh, they will hence in the future disappear from our view, but obviously not in any time scale that uh, we humans are worried about. So there you are, two very nice objects to see in the southern sky. If you've got binoculars and you look at the small Magellanic Cloud, you should see quite a bright fuzzy object, very close indeed. 
That is what is called a globular cluster. It's called 47 Tacani, and at its heart, the stars are very, very tightly packed. It's one of the densest concentrations of stars that we know of, and that is one of the brightest of the so-called globular clusters. Their spherical distribution of stars they date back from the origin, really, of our galaxy, and they're like sort of little miniature spherical galaxies, maybe up to a million stars. So have a look out for 47 Tacani as well. Well, I hope that gives those of you who live in the southern hemisphere something to look at. A few years ago, I did co-author a book called Pocket Guide to Stars and Planets. It's available on Amazon, and I tried to treat. The southern hemisphere on an equal basis with the northern hemisphere, so all of the quarterly star charts are there twice. One of them's upside down, especially for you. And there's a list of quite a number, about fifty odd、uh, objects in the sky, including some of the best objects to observe from the southern hemisphere. I call it the astronomical A list, and、uh, at least fifteen of those are things that we can't see from our northern skies. But hopefully, it's only about nine, nine or ten pounds. It's not terribly expensive. It would give you a lead as to some of the nice things to look at in your lovely southern skies. I'm going to be down with you before long. Hopefully, I'm going to have a lovely look look at those Magellanic clouds in just a few weeks. Thanks, Ian. Now, Stuart, you've got some news about one of the first activities which will occur for the International Year of Astronomy. I do. Now, the International Year of Astronomy, as hopefully most of our listeners already know, is a year that's sponsored by the United Nations and the International Astronomical Union to encourage people to find out about astronomy. It's based in 2009 because that's the 400th anniversary of the first astronomical use of the telescope. Now, the official launch of the IOA 2009 is on the 15th to 16th of January in Paris. But before then, on the very Beginning of the year, the first of January, we have a special event that's being organised by the Centro de Astrofisica da Universidade do Porto, which is to observe the sun at local noon wherever you are in the world. Now, obviously, we should point out that observing the sun is quite dangerous, and you should never look directly at the sun without any kind of safe protection. But they're encouraging people who have solar telescopes or means of projecting with a pinhole camera to. Gather in public places like science centres or town halls and shopping centres, or even on their own street outside the house, to allow other people to observe the sun, perhaps for the first time ever.、Mm. So they're they're calling on basically amateur solar observers, pretty much. They've got a very ambitious date for doing this. They've got on, they want to get as many people doing this local noon. First of January, two thousand nine. Yes, I'm not quite sure how many people will be hungover after celebrating from the night before. You do wonder, but. If people are out and about, and、uh, the sun is shining wherever you are at local noon, and you are able to、uh, provide a solar telescope, or you have experience projecting the sun onto a cardboard surface or something like that, there's many ways of observing the sun safely. Then perhaps you want to have some more information. Where can you go and get more information about this, Stuart? Well, you can download a full set of instructions of how to safely observe the sun and what they're they're planning to do. If you go to astronomy2009.org/dawn, D-A-W-N, as in dawn of the the new year, and there you'll be able to get all the information. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And in the next issue, we'll be bringing you more news about the International Year of Astronomy. And now it's time for your listener feedback. 
Stuart, what have you got from iTunes? We've only had one review on iTunes this month. It was from Johnny C in the UK iTunes store. He gave us five stars and said he likes us asking questions like, how do we weigh a galaxy? Very good. Thank you very much indeed for that feedback. We've got feedback uh, coming in from the website from Edward Ratzer, Nick Howes, Mario Soriano, who's listening from Barcelona, Spain, and Mr. Collins. So thank you very much indeed for your feedback. Now, feedback on Facebook. Hello to all our new Facebook group members for the Jodcast. Many thanks to Dason Boone. Apologies if I've mispronounced your name. My Cyrillic to Latin uh, online converter may not have got that quite right. He writes, keep up the great work. Your podcast is a shining example of scientific conversation in the new media world. We like to think so. Thank you very much. Many thanks to Aaron Slack, who enjoys listening to us on his long drive out to his dark observing site in the Everglades. And to Paul M. Jones, listening in London, who suggests a feature on decent binoculars or telescopes for amateurs. Now, we've been thinking about doing this for quite some time, and we are going to get Ian Morrison to talk about a selection of telescopes, because he has got quite a few, and he's extremely experienced in amateur telescope observing. And so we will ask him to give us a bit of a review, his suggestions, his comments on a variety of telescopes which would be suitable for amateur telescope and binocular observing. So stay tuned for that. In the new year, we will interview Ian about that. And in the meantime, Ian did a review of a Celestron Nexstar 130 SLT back in May 2006, which is in our archives. So if you go to the Jodcast website and go to the archive page, you'll be able to find it. And as I say, we will get Ian to talk about uh, a few more telescopes and some binoculars for you two in the new year. Now, as I said at the start of this episode, we've got some exciting news. Stuart, what's the news? The news is that finally, it's taken us about two or three months, but finally we have a Jodcast forum. It's at forum.jodcast.net, and if you go there, you'll be able to click the sign in button at the top of the page and sign in register, and then you'll be able to sign, send messages onto the forum. So remember, this is your forum. This is your opportunity to interact with us and the rest of the Jodcast audience. So do please sign up, log in, and contribute. We look forward to reading your posts. And remember that you can follow us on YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast, where we've just put a new video. Yes, indeed. This one is the second video that we recorded at the Royal Society Summer Science Exhibition earlier this year. We caught up with the exhibitors who were talking about observing gravitational waves. So go, please, check out the video on YouTube. We've also got links on the Jodcast website to the video in a variety of resolutions, so you can download them at your leisure and watch. And remember, you can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Jodcast. You can send in your listener feedback to us at www.jodcast.net and click on the contact page, fill in the form. You can also follow us on Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. So that just leaves us to say thank you to Matt Jarvis, to Fiona Waller for editing the pantomime, and to all of you for downloading us. So until next time, jot on! Jot on! Come along, come along. Lots more to see and the day's almost over. How many are there left now? Just two of us. Stuart and Megan were left behind in the computer room. And the fifth one was sucked through the vortex when we looked at the transporter room. Really? 
Oh, I didn't even catch his name. Never mind, here's our next room. Stand well back, everyone, while I unleash the sound effects. Further up and further in, everybody, past the segway room, which leads us nicely onto the guest character quarters. Open the subtle play doors, Hal. Yes, Steve. Let's see who's inside. Wonka, now that you're here, I can finally bring you to your knees and make the Federation rise from the ashes. Afternoon, Servalan. You always were brave, Wonka, or just stupid. You will address me as Madam President, for so I shall be again. Yes, well, there you have it, everybody. One of the guest characters. I'll think I'll stay behind and um, <clears throat> um, interview the Madam President for good measure. You see, Wonka, some people know how to address their superiors. You always were a fool. Come, child. Come along, come along. What's next? Mr. Wonka, there's only young Nicky left now. We've lost all the others. Really? Oh, dear boy, you've won. Won? Won what? Why, the factory, of course. You are to be the next owner. Aren't you thrilled? An intro factory? When I have research on microlensing to do, no way. What do you mean? Sorry, I have far too much to do. You can keep your factory. Oh, that's not supposed to happen. Oh, well, I suppose I'll just have to go back to India and keep doing the intros and outros myself. Uh, see yourselves, Ant. What just happened? You're asking me? I'm just an astronomer. No more. Let's... Let's get out of here. In Nick and the Intro Factory, Tom Muxlow was the narrator, Fiona Waller was the M&S lady, Mark Bruzzi was Hal, Megan Argo, David Alt, Stuart Lowe, Tim O'Brien, Roy Schmidt and Nick Rattenbury were themselves. <laughs>